You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the former president of the Southern Economics Association and the Society for the Development of Austrian Economics. Holding a PhD in economics from Duke University, she is now the Emeritus Distinguished Senior Fellow for the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics, as well as the author of a book entitled Austrian Economics in America, The Migration of a Tradition. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Karen Vaughn. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Well, I <clears throat> I was born in New York City. I was a dyed-in-the-wool New Yorker until I left for graduate school to go to Duke University. Um, I went to Queens College, uh, undergraduate, <clears throat> where I was start. I discovered economics in my senior year. So I had to I had to stay in an extra semester to finish all my course credits. And during that time, I also had a just a cursory acquaintance with the Austrian school. Then I went to Duke, concentrated on my studies as a historian of economic thought. I worked on John Locke and I wrote my dissertation on John Locke. My first publication was uh, John Locke, Economist and Social Scientist. Uh, I went to the, from there, um, my husband and I, when I met in graduate school, went to the University of Tennessee for a while and migrated up to Washington, D.C., where I took a job at George Mason University when it was in its infancy and <clears throat> stayed there for 26 years. I was department chairman for seven years and um, was involved in, in developing the Center for the Study of Market Processes which was the precursor, a long ago precursor to current Hayek program. Wow, um, that is that is an incredible background. Um, 26 years at, at one university, this is quite remarkable. So well, there was a reason for that. <laughs> when I got there, there was it was very new and, and unknown, and there really wasn't much going on. And I kept thinking, well, I'm just going to see, stay here a few years and then move on. But then we were... We uh, were able to bring the market market processes or the people interested in forming the market processes center to George George Mason. And it got more interesting for me. And then the uh, James Buchanan and the Public Choice Center moved there and it became not only more interesting, but a place that I really like to stay. So that accounts for my 26 years. <clears throat> All right. Um, so to start off, um, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit more about the Austrian School of Economics for um, some of our viewers who may not be familiar. Well, let's see. The Austrian School originally, as you might guess, started with Karl Menger and um, in Austria in the 18, 1870s, <clears throat> uh, where he wrote a book. On, on, on the, excuse me, <clears throat> he wrote a treatise on economics where he was developing his version of a marginal theory of value. And this was about the same time other marginalists, such as, <clears throat> as Jevons, was, was working. 
And he um, he had a slight twist on, well, not a slight twist, a major twist in that he was more interested in market processes, not just defining an equilibrium condition the, uh, between uh, marginal uh, marginal cost and and marginal utility, but he was interested in looking at the processes by which uh, economies work. In a way, I think of him as sort of a um, kind of a tacit follower of Adam Smith, who was more interested in economic growth and development and in the order that defined an economic system. Um, then he had several very influential students, but the one I would like to concentrate on was not directly his student, but a student of a student, and that was Ludwig von Mises in Austria. <clears throat> and he followed on a lot of Menger's insights. And he um, he was very interested in, in, in su- support and describing and understanding first the monetary system. And then he got interested in the economics of socialism. And that happened because he had in his seminar a couple of Marxists, and the Marxists were touting the the benefits of a propertyless society, of a communal society, one without without competition and conflict. And he thought that that was completely misunderstanding the nature of the world and the nature of an economic system. So he wrote an article called Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth, where he basically argued without private property and and exchange and monetary exchange, you could not have um, a productive society. As a matter of fact, he said it would be far, far inferior to a market economy. Now, um, this was sort of the beginning of um, the Austrian interest in contrasting their view with a more socialist view. Initially, it was Marxism because this was the very early 20th century, but then in the mid in the 1930s, there was supposedly an ec, a, a neoclassical economic theory of socialism that showed socialism could work, and as a matter of, and as a matter of fact, not only work but be superior to markets, and that's where Hayek Friedrich Hayek got involved in, in uh, publishing essays on people not only Austrians but people who who agreed with the Austrian view that. There was there were grave deficiencies in a centrally planned economy. Now, the only reason I bring this up is because it was through this debate that took place during the 30s and into the 40s that the the real not only the differences between Austrian economics and socialist economics emerged, but also the differences between Austrian economics and neoclassical economics. And that is the neoclassical economics of Laurasian general equilibrium, which they thought did not capture essential features of the market economy. And from there, uh, well, they were at at that time, the, the, um, the Austrian view was not very widely accepted. 
And in fact, it was pretty much ignored, except by those who, like Oscar Lange, who smugly thought that they had defeated the Austrians. But then in the early 70s, there were there was a younger generation in the, in the United States, Israel Kirzner, who you may well know, since he was at NYU for so many years, who taught people um, um, the and who who tried to explain some of the Austrian views by emphasizing the importance of entrepreneurship. And then this kind of spawned another generation. Mario Rizzo was, of course, one of that younger generation who started to work very seriously and articulating the Austrian um, distinctiveness from neoclassical economics. Uh, this distinctiveness, I'll, I'll try to just summarize it, not only an emphasis on the actual processes of how markets work, the decisions people make, but also the, the things that that um, are contours to their decision-making. And the two things, the two aspects that are that are most important to the Austrian view is to recognize that knowledge is not given. Knowledge is not something that one can assume in production functions or, in, or even in utility functions. They're not static. That knowledge changes, knowledge is, but it's not only changing, but it's decentralized. We don't all know the same things. And that was one of criticism of the, at least the more naive um, neoclassical models. And that is the only, the, the raison d'etre for markets is that people know different things. They have different skills and the market allows them to cooperate with one another and to create a vibrant and growing economy. Austrian economics is essentially a theory of economic development rather than a theory of price determination, for example. I know that's kind of a long-winded answer to your question. And I hope that I hope that's <clears throat> if you have any questions, you know, pop in with it. My name is Eric Gray, and I'm the host of the podcast, Dumb People with Terrible Ideas, where I exhaustively research a single subject, explain it in under 20 minutes, while providing particularly playful puns peppered with poop jokes. What is trickle-down economics, you might ask? What is wrong with FM radio? Why does Rudy Giuliani look like that? Dumb People with Terrible Ideas is available wherever you get your podcasts. And it leans left. It's feverishly funny, ferociously factual, and filled with fast-moving nonfiction info narrated as if the movie trailer guy got a PhD and then went to open mic night at the comedy store. Check out my podcast, Dumb People with Terrible Ideas. The only podcast that makes dumb people learn and smart people laugh. Yeah, uh, no, I think that gives us an excellent, excellent background and understanding um, from which to build off from 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 here. So the one of the things I came across in your bio was this bit about reassessing Austrian economics in the post-communist um, area era. Sorry. Um, Obviously, the Austrian school of economics developed around the same time as Karl Marx's work started to gain notoriety um, in around the same part of the world. 
Um, obviously, um, communism rejected a lot of the ideas of um, Austrian economics, um, especially how, um, as you said, um, people have different skill sets and, and, and knowledge and, and talents and how, how to best utilize those um, for um, the, the maximum benefit of, of everyone. Um, so obviously, it rejected a lot of those ideas. Um, so I wanted to ask you, essentially, were there any influences um, of Marxism on the development or, or the evolution of Austrian economics, given the widespread adaptation of communism um, throughout the 20th century? And how has the Austrian way of thinking about the economy changed in the past 30 years or so after the Soviet Union collapsed? Well, that's a very interesting and very complicated question. <laughs> so let me start off. In the 19th century, um, when when Menger was writing, his opposition wasn't so much, at least in his, in his technical work, to Marx per se. It was to, he was writing in opposition to a labor theory of value. Now, of course, Marx held a labor theory of value, but Marx essentially gets it from Ricardo. And, and it was a theory of basically trying to form an objective way of measuring value. And the object, the objective way was, of course, to look at the labor content of, of goods and services. So I don't think it was Marxist ideology so much in those years, although Menger um, was clearly, you know, a, a 19th century classical liberal. But, you know, he was, that was a big club. In the 20th century, that's when you really start when Mises got involved in these seminars with these avowed Marxists that. He went directly at Marx and said, "These, these, not only Marx himself, but these Marxists who are trying to interpret it, his views into ways of reorganizing society." That that, and that's what Mises was arguing was just impossible because they didn't understand the importance of incentives. They didn't understand the importance of property rights, and basically, they had a utopian view of human nature. Uh, Tom Sowell wrote a book once called uh, Conflict of Visions, and he com he contrasted what he called the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. The constrained vision sees human beings as, um, as limited. And what you're looking for or what you're hoping to achieve is a society where these limited and very dispersed and different human beings can can benefit from each other. And that's what Smith saw market economy did. And that's, you know, and that's what Mises did, the Austrians, and so many conventional economists too. It's not just the Austrians. Whereas the, the utopian vision, the, the Marxist vision is that human beings are perfectible. And you could, the way you needed to perfect them is to put the right people in charge, take away, well, take away, excuse me, that I'm jumping ahead. The first way to perfect them is to get rid of private property, since that was corrupting. And if you get rid of private corrupt property, then people's character will change. They'll become more, um, uh, well, more cooperative, more communal. And some of the early schemes were kind of laughable now when you think about them. One was that everybody will produce according to his ability, bring the products of this production uh, to a central warehouse or something, and then people will come and just take what they need. You know, it's kind of a, um, a naive and 
way of interpreting from each according to his ability to each according to his need. But I mean, it was schemes like this that Mises was finding just unbelievable. And so he went, he specifically attacked some and tried to correct a lot of these views. Um, once you get into the um, mid 20, mid 20th century, again, the Austrians were, were focusing on economic issues and they weren't taking Marx per, um, to task per se, but they were again looking at the uh, um, socialist theory and also the behavior of the Soviet Union. Now, and this, at, and the, <clears throat> the Soviet Union was not a particularly good example of what the, a lot of conventional economists thought was possible under socialism. So, I mean, the, so, but it was something to study, but it was, um, it was more the theory of socialism that got discussed during this time. Um, well, jumping ahead to your question about what happened when the when the when the uh, Soviet Empire collapsed, and that that is an interesting question because I think a lot of us were wrong. On the one hand, we thought, "Oh, see, we this proves." that central planning really doesn't work. And I think it did pretty much, although the current generation seems to have forgotten about that. <clears throat> but it also meant, how do we understand how you move from a, from, a, um, from a system that did not actually get rid of private property, but just shifted the decision-making to a, a, a bureaucracy? An incredibly huge and complicated bureaucracy that um, basically made it impossible for entrepreneurs to operate except in the black market and made decisions about production decisions be wildly off the mark as to what was really needed or wanted. So how do you move from that to a more market-oriented society. And this is where I think not only Austrians, but a lot of economists were wrong. They thought, oh, well, we know what works. Private property, stable money, um, the, right, the right incentive structure in the legal system. And for some reason thought it could be transplanted in a formerly socialist economy. So I don't think it changed Austrian theory very much. I think it changed maybe the more, what changed more was the understanding of the limitations of um, economists and dictating change. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed myself because I used to teach, uh, um, what it was the course was called Comparative Economic Systems, and then we changed it to Economies in Transition. And at that time, it was all about what's the proper road to sort of make Russia now this free market economy. Well, you see what happened there. It didn't work. But as far as Austrian theory went, it was still a, what was pursued was not only the implications of 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 um, limited knowledge, but also the implications of time, the fact that we're all, everything 
that we do is a speculation about the, the outcome in the future because it can never be known. And how is that incorporated into theory? So, right. so uh, I, I also wanted to ask you about how the uh, Austrian School of Economics has changed since it moved to the United States. So obviously the American economy was quite different uh, to those in Western Europe um, being a federal system. Since the Austrian economic school came to the United States, the economy and really all areas of life have undergone significant technological advancement, um, fundamentally changing the way both business is done and the way the government operates. So how has the Austrian school changed since it's moved to the U.S.? And what role has technological advancement played? Hmm. I don't know. I have to think about that. Um, they, it changed because... It went into eclipse for a long time, as I said, and then when it came out, it identified new areas that needed emphasis, as I said. Kersner started off with entrepreneurship and how you couldn't even explain um, market clearing without some notion of an entrepreneur, how an entrepreneurship is, is vital to the discovery procedure. Um, Hayek moved to the United States and didn't initially start doing economics. But when he did, he started questioning the whole use of equilibrium theory and which had started when he was when he was back in England. But when he got to the United States, um, he, he worked on on um, political and legal theory. But then he got back to, to questioning uh, the nature of a market economy. And he wrote some a piece called um, competition is a discovery procedure, which I, is one of my favorite of his pieces, because essentially what it says is um, competition is something wherein people discover their, what they need to do. They don't know in advance. Competition is a way of bringing these different discoveries together. And it's also future looking. Um, and and, and in, in addition to that, he call, it calls into question the whole notion of a static equilibrium. Do we even need that concept to explain a progressive, ongoing, changing order? And that became a focus of discussion. It, I, I don't really know how to answer your question about technology because, you know, I've been retired for a number of years. And I know a lot of our Austrian students are doing a lot of empirical work now, which I think is very good. But I really not I'm, I'm not sure what you're getting at, I guess, with that. I, I just meant um, I, I think uh, from from how I understand it, um, technological advancement would have had uh, significantly improved the um, the efficacy of, of sort of um, Austrian models, you know, just with the increased information, the increased competition. Oh. Um, you know, for example, people can drive a lot further distances or, you know, they can order um, order in uh, goods from anywhere in the world. They're not just restricted to how far they can go um, to, to purchase goods in their in their vicinity. So I think it, it opened up markets to huge extent. Right. Um, it opened up the labor market working from home. For mm -hmm. example, you can now get a job anywhere in, in, in the country as opposed to just how far you you could you could go in the morning. So I think, yeah, that, that's really what I was trying to get at. OK, well, that's a much better explanation than I could have given. Very good. <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. But I think what the Austrians would say is the technological advance itself is a consequence of of freedom and in in, to experiment in the market. And if you don't have freedom to experiment, you just 
you just don't have technological progress. Progress is experimentation. Markets are experimentation. Obviously, and, and I, th I think that's why one of the reasons why there was almost no innovation in, in the entire um, history of the Soviet Union. Very, very little, um, if anything, came well, you from private you couldn't, you couldn't do anything without asking permission. Um, I don't remember who said this, but I read this line and I thought it was so accurate. <clears throat> um, market economies are places where people can do things and not ask permission first. <laughs> In the Soviet Union, you had to, the, the directions came from the top down and they, they had no, those were not innovators. Those were people who had a fixed idea and they thought everything was based on quantities. Okay, we have so many quantities of nails and so many barrels of oil without really understanding that they could never generate new knowledge that would become official. Of course, the black market did, you know, was pretty good at that, but they were limited by the fear of getting caught. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. That was, that you would think that that contrast that became so evident by the by 19 by the late 80s would have sort of settled the issue but it never does yes well i think um I, i'm not quite sure i remember who said it but um when when we forget the the mistakes of when, when we forget history we're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past yeah, right. <laughs> so um, next, I just wanted to um, switch gears a little bit and talk to you about another one of your research interests, which is a pro-market view of feminism. So you recently, so um, sorry, you you yourself entered the field of economics at a time when women comprised an exceedingly small minority in the field and at a time when ideas surrounding women's rights had just started to become much more mainstream. However, um, as, as I'm sure you're aware, feminism uh, has changed quite a bit since then and has come to uh, involve a lot more coercive government policy and calls for equality of outcome instead of opportunity. So could you please tell us, number one, a bit about your journey as, as a woman in the field of economics over the past half century? And number two, how the ideas of mainstream feminism have changed throughout your career and whether or not you would consider yourself a feminist by today's standards? Well, the answer to that last question is no. But I can tell you about my journey. And I start, as I said, I went to Queens College. And when I discovered economics, I signed up for a micro class. And I was the only woman in the class except for the professor. And it never occurred to me to worry about that. You know, I was interested in the subject and I did well. And I, I, I suppose in retrospect, having a female professor might have been a, a little bit of support. But, and, you know, I just went on from there. I never felt that I was singled out in any way. As a matter of fact, I won an award. And then I, I won full fellowship to um, Duke University. There were four women there. And, uh, you know, I think we were all treated equally. And I, I, I never worried about it. Now, my first job at the University of Tennessee was a little different. This was Tennessee, and it, would, it was 1969 or 70. And I was told by the chairman, I was lucky because until recently, female faculty had to type all their own papers. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, well, that's crazy. Why? Well, because, you know, you can't expect, you know, women can type. And then I would get these little digs from him once in a while that I didn't much like. On the other hand, you know, I got along with the faculty. I never worried too much about it. But then... <laughs> then Ms. Magazine came out, and I was all for it. 
you know, I was, <clears throat> I had worked in Bloomingdale's when I was a, was in, was in college and I let her learn that, um, Male managers doing the same job earn more than female managers. And I was kind of outraged by that. So when Ms. Magazine came along, I thought, well, this is for me. And I was <clears throat> I subscribed and and I thought women can do what men can do if they choose to do it. And there's no reason that there should be a, a, some kind of um, skepticism about a female's ability to enter any field. Well. Then Ms. started touting all kinds of government uh, programs to, to uh, support their views. And basically, you know, I thought undercutting their, their whole view that, you know, women should be treated equally. And now they were starting to look for special privileges. So I kind of gradually grew away from it, canceled my, my subscription and just went on with my life and didn't really. Then I went to uh, let's see, it was in Southern Economic Association meetings, and they had cease work, you know, accounts committee for the, um, anyway, the status of women in economics. And I thought, well, I better check that out. You know, well, it was all, a lot of it, not all of it, but a lot of it was kind of carping and complaining. And, and um, I thought, sort of a bad attitude. When I got a, a when I got a, a complaint, I mean, if I got a criticism when I was giving a paper, I would look at it as as an opportunity to explain myself better. And I, you know, and I go on. Well, some of these women were thinking they should treat it as an attack. And so I kind of moved away from cease work, too, although there are many, many fine women there. But this one session I went to, I found kind of appalling. It was the precursor to what I think of as kind of the downfall of modern feminism. As you pointed out, it's not about equal outcomes. It's about equal opportunities. And there are. And the wage gap, the, the the greatly touted wage gap, when I didn't, I haven't done the work myself, but I've worked, read the work. And it says, it shows that when you control for things like hours of work, um, field you go into, uh, um, marital, marital status, the wage gap almost dissolves. And so it seems to me it, what what these a lot of these um, kind of feminist complaints today don't recognize that women make choices and their choices. Hello, are you still there? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Women make, make choices. And for instance, I know it's probably kind of anathema to say that women actually like their children and often want to spend more time with them. Um, but, you know, sometimes you're a household. You have to make decisions. I, I've been married to the same man for 53 years and we've, mar- and we've raised a daughter and we both had careers. But each of us have made sacrifices. Um, and, you know, you do that. You weigh, you weigh. You weigh those options. And women are perfectly capable of making those decisions. I find so much of feminism to be condescending from the, you know, from the elites down to the uh, to the less educated. So. I didn't mean to talk about this, but you, 
<laughs> but you got me going on it. Yeah, well, um, it's it's always great to hear hear, hear um, the perspective of someone who's had so much history, um, both in in academia and you know just as a woman in, in in this field when it was exceptionally rare to to be one. So those are all the questions I, I have for you today. Um, once again, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you for having me. I, I hope I answered your questions. So. Oh, absolutely. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.